You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, Owen oh, Two Door Cinema Club. You're listening to American Shadows production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. It rose up from below, a sentinel of sweeping steel and promise. The Brooklyn Bridge soared, a stately giant that welded the two banks of the East River together. It was the longest suspension bridge ever created, an eighth wonder of the world, according to some. It became a point of pride for New York, and one of the most recognizable landmarks around, especially to those who had just arrived on America's shores. The bridge had become just as iconic as Lady Liberty herself. Immigrants saw these towering figures as symbols of possibility. They arrived in ship after ship because they understood America to be a place of opportunity, as did the conmen who waited for the newcomers at the docks, some of whom, as we've talked about before on this show, went about trying to sell them that very bridge. The scammers who preyed upon the dreams of these sea-weary travelers and convinced them that they've had a bridge to sell were a dime a dozen, so much so that the processors at Ellis Island began warning people about them and others to be on the lookout for. It was evident that the American dream was ripe for exploitation. Immigrants arrived believing they were starting over, that their new lives were about to begin. And some, like Bertha Heyman, relished in starting over again, and again, and again. Bertha was committed to the hustle. A daughter of Prussia, she made her way to the United States in 1878. She was an immigrant, too, landing wide-eyed at the docks, like so many before her. But she wasn't one to be scammed. The opposite, in fact. Bertha was known to be quite the talker, a bullish and brazen woman who made it her life's work to ingratiate herself with wealthy men. She was money-driven, and in the golden era of industrialization, she knew that some of these men of old New York had some cash to spare. So Bertha donned her finest garb and played the part of a rich mourning widow often talking herself into endless lines of credit 
gifts, and forged checks. The issue, she often told her marks, was that of course she had the money, she was just struggling to access it. But she was charming, and her looks were thought to be disarming by some, and this got her a long way. She stayed at the finest hotels, had a maid, and worked her way around the city. Her hard work involved less sweat and more pearls. As bold as she was, it's perhaps no surprise that she became a known quantity to the New York City Police Department. Bertha was in and out of jail, but never stayed too long, and somehow managed to still keep bilking fortunes behind bars. The name she made for herself horrified and impressed many, to the point that she was eventually given her own one-woman theater show. In it, she played herself, recounting her capers and life of crime for all to enjoy. For this, she earned a paycheck, fair and square. It seems that, in America, newcomers could become anyone. It's long been a place of reinvention. It still is today. But, as you'll see, some took this quite literally, and not all for reasons you might expect. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle didn't mention her name, but her story was a cautionary tale for youngsters across the city. The newspaper reported that she was a gal of 16, off for an afternoon outing at P.T. Barnum's Great American Museum. It was one of the most famous places in all of New York City. There, visitors were greeted with a collection of sights, sounds, and stories that prickled across their imaginations like goosebumps on the skin. Many people her age had never been to a city, let alone held court with a giantess, dwarf, or mermaid. In New York, though, anything was possible. She was alone that day, which wasn't terribly uncommon in the 1840s. Many young folks had been moving into the city to find new work opportunities, and there they sought out entertainment, too. While she watched a play at the museum, a man sidled up to her. He appeared to be a gentlemanly fellow, taking the time to point out what was going on. To us, this encounter probably wouldn't feel dissimilar to sitting with a chatty moviegoer. But she couldn't quite shake him. He was so knowledgeable and so generous that she assumed he worked at the place, and she didn't want to be rude. By the time the play was over, it was dark. She had never intended to stay this long. The girl was stuck now, not wanting to travel alone, but not exactly excited to be traveling with this strange man. He insisted on walking her home, which she allowed him to do, but he didn't stop at her front door. He allowed himself in, brushing past the maid and installing himself in her parlor. And there he sat, at ease, but only for a few minutes, until the girl's father appeared. Both men, of course, were shocked to see the other, and only then did the intruder realize that the jig was up, and that his night of persuasion and intended predation had come to an end. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle went on to plea with Barnum to be more dutiful to his visitors and safeguard them against opportunists. These people were a social scourge, the paper implied, and they were multiplying. Things were changing quickly in 19th century America, Industrialization was providing jobs where family farms were beginning to fall short, and young people were migrating into cities. Here, they were on their own, dislocated from the watchful eyes of their families and communities. Most of them were on their own for the first time in their lives. They moved into hotels and boarding homes, 
they went to work. They went to bars. They went to dance halls. They were performing independence and a new kind of adulthood that the country had never seen before. As a way to meet the needs of this ballooning teenage population, dozens of etiquette manuals were published around how to take care of oneself. These books spelled out rules for living, how to eat, dress, work, and court. They would become respectable members of society if only they could follow the rules. These newcomers were hopeful, and they were often naive. Urban life was ripe for anonymity. And sometimes this anonymity became an opportunity for crime. The etiquette manuals warned the newly arrived about the dangers of confidence men. These were opportunistic swindlers, wolves in sheep's clothing, seemingly charitable strangers who only dropped their mask when it was a minute too late. Confidence men were nothing but clever actors performing charity on the stage of New York City's streets. There, they hustled to get whatever they wanted by becoming whomever their unsuspecting victims wanted them to be. The tools of their trade were a bit of psychology and perhaps some fancy tailoring. The term confidence man, or con man for short, first appeared in 1849, coined by the New York press. The paper was documenting the court trial of William Thompson, whose game had been to win the confidence of a stranger, ask to borrow his watch, and walk away laughing. The paper suggested men like him were becoming more common. By the 1860s, police captains estimated that there were 2,500 professional criminals living and operating in New York. They became a quirky, dangerous feature of the city that needed to be kept under watch. And there was one man, a son of Brooklyn, who had become one of the most famous cons of them all. What made him different was that money wasn't his end game, but rather something much deeper. The mirror was doing its job. In it, the young man gazed at his reflection. He raised his eyebrows, jutted his chin, and pulled his shoulders back. He tried a few more postures, a few more faces. His looking glass was a tool. In time, it would become his constant companion, his fiercest ally, a means of social lubrication and upward mobility. In it, he saw not who he truly was, but a carefully crafted image of everyone he ever wanted to be. As he looked at himself and studied his newest disguise, the mirror gave him even more ideas of who he could become. That day, at 19 years old, he would be a recently appointed U.S. consular agent to the fictitious Porta Abres, Morocco, a fairly straightforward claim aided by the fact that Google Maps had yet to be invented. Who he really was, at the beginning, was someone a bit more humble. He was a pint-sized kid named Stephen Jacob Weinberg, born in 1890 in Brooklyn. He lived in a plain neighborhood, on a plain block, in a plain two-story home. Nothing about his origin would suggest he would ever eke out a life beyond the most ordinary of existences. His family was working class, and his dream of becoming a doctor was pretty out of reach. So he took on everyday service jobs, making a buck in the same way many other folks did at the time. Not much about him was notable, except for his imagination. He dreamed of a world outside of his block. He wished for power. He wanted esteem, respect, 
to instill awe, and he wanted to fast-track his way to it all. At his house in Brooklyn, he began stuffing his closets with a clever array of uniforms. He had trousers and coattails, brass buttons and military jackets. He had an extensive collection of shoes and ties and other trappings of important fineries. But if one looked close enough, they could see that something might be askew. A button missing, the wrong shoe color, ribbons pinned the wrong way. But these thoughts would quickly quiet once Stephen began to speak as he unraveled yarns that captivated anyone in earshot. By 21, though, he was frequently wanted by police for his impersonation tactics. But amazingly, he never tried very hard to hide himself. He continued to reside in his old neighborhood and never legally changed his name, though he went by many. He never changed his signature mustache or dyed his hair. The police assumed he wouldn't be foolish enough to go home when they were looking for him, but they were wrong. By all accounts, he lived quite comfortably, close to his parents, and surrounded by all of his costuming. In 1915, the U.S. Navy received a phone call from a man claiming to be Romania's Consul General in New York. The caller claimed that Queen Mary had asked that he pay his respects to the U.S. military by touring and inspecting the USS Wyoming battleship, which was docked nearby in the Hudson River. The Navy obliged and brought him aboard. Stephen, the hero of our story, and certainly the hero of his own, was greeted by rows of troops who stood at attention to meet him. He was a commanding sight in his light blue uniform and admiral's hat. When he was sufficiently pleased with the tour, he announced to everyone that he would be throwing a dinner party for military officers at the Astor Hotel in Times Square, and they were all cordially invited. This, of course, would be on the Romanian consulate's dime, the night came and the festivities kicked into high gear. The party was short-lived, though. Stephen had been brazen enough to publish an announcement about the party in the pages of the New York Times, using his own name. That evening, two detectives stormed into the room and dragged him away. By all accounts, Stephen never broke character the whole time, until, one story claims, he told officers that he wished they could have waited until after dessert. According to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, the captain of the Wyoming was thoroughly impressed. He told the paper, all I can say is the little guy can put on one hell of a tour inspection. And this was just the beginning of a much longer career. Two years later, he would end up in jail for forging the name of a U.S. senator on a job recommendation to become a local bank teller. In 1920, he would be arrested in a park for wearing a Navy uniform with stripes all askew. Upon arrest, he told a half-truth, that he wasn't really an officer, but in reality, a doctor. He was only a short prison stint away from his next adventure, which took him to Peru. Here, he conned his way into the role of a sanitation expert for an American engineering company. He spent wildly, throwing extravagant parties and living the high life on the company dime. It seems like you just can't put a price on charisma and charm two things that Stephen was very rich with indeed. In later years, Stephen would talk about his depression, his mania, and the life-saving chemical cocktail that came in the midst of what he called perking up. He was prone to the blues. His ego was fed by the dopamine hits that came from playing someone else. A uniform brought him admiration, Fancy titles brought reverence. 
A new backstory made him the most interesting man in the room, not some poor kid from Brooklyn. Laying in bed one morning and unsure of his next move, he read about a princess. She was coming to New York from Afghanistan, and though the press was enamored with her arrival, she'd been met by a cool attitude from the U.S. government. In July of 1921, Afghanistan was a newly minted sovereign nation. Princess Fatima and her sons, it seems, were somewhat distant relations to the crown and weren't high on the priority list for all the statecraft and red carpets. She wanted to meet President Warren G. Harding, but her invite hadn't materialized. And it was there, not far from dreaming himself, that Stephen decided he was going to make this dream of hers happen. He was shortly out the door, blue uniform pressed and face freshly shaven. Soon, he arrived at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, where he conned his way into her suite. He was there on behalf of the Secretary of State, he said, and promised to personally take her to Washington. But first, she needed to hand over $10,000 for tribute gifts. He then made a few phone calls. First was Robert Woods Bliss, an underling to the Secretary of State, who Stephen told that he was calling as the State Department Naval Liaison Officer, and that Princess Fatima was with him. She was amenable to meeting with the President, Stephen reported, and that he would go ahead and contact the President's office directly to arrange a meeting. Robert, who assumed he had missed an order from above, went to work. Soon thereafter, the Secretary of State briefed the President on Afghanistan in preparation for her arrival. Stephen, meanwhile, rented a luxurious private rail car to bring the princess and her family to Washington. He installed them in an expensive hotel suite before quickly making tracks over to the State Department offices. Upon arrival, he told them he had come at the behest of several senators who wanted to encourage the government to show a bit more gracious diplomacy. Princess Fatima wanted to meet the Secretary of State, which she soon did, and then the entire unlikely troop was on their way to the White House's front door. The photo record shows a smiling court on the White House lawn, the President and the First Lady, the Princess and her sons, and Stephen, all smiling. For the Hardings, this was a somewhat unexpected development. The President had just returned home from a camping trip and ended the day a lot more decadently than it had started. By bedtime, he had inherited an entire collection of cashmere shawls, finely knotted rugs, and brightly colored turbans, plus had had an audience with royalty. And, as the records show, Princess Fatima was very pleased as well. Stephen, chatty as always, relished the moment and worked to ingratiate himself to everyone in the room, which was quite odd behavior for a man in uniform. But before any side eyes turned into real questions, he was back out the door. Stephen stayed on with the princess, telling her that he was granted a leave of absence from his job so he could be her personal secretary and advisor, and her physician if she or her sons ever needed one, for he also happened to be a medical doctor. It took about two months for Fatima to begin articulating her concerns about Stephen. The bills weren't adding up. Gifts weren't being delivered. He seemed to be ghosting her. He was giving her conflicting information. Law enforcement realized the Brooklyn address he gave the princess matched that of the city's most notorious serial imposter. He was quickly handcuffed and charged for impersonating a naval officer and sentenced to two years in prison. Stephen's father appealed for psychiatric treatment instead, 
and Stephen insisted that he never committed these impostures out of malice. They stemmed from, he said, his manic-depressive episodes from which he had long suffered. The judge didn't buy this. He thought the claim was just another one of Stephen's stories, a creative fiction to help him slink through the world and many important doors, like the chameleon he had proven himself to be. We can look at Stephen's life as one long piece of performance art. We can also admire his stamina. He was as crafty as he was beguiling. He dressed for every part he played, if imperfectly, and crafted his moves around tactical omission. For example, though he claimed to be a pilot, he was never seen flying a plane. As a sanitation expert, he was never down in the trenches. He was gregarious, friendly, and nothing but a consummate gentleman. You couldn't help but like the guy. This is exactly how silver screen star Pola Negri felt about a certain physician when her sweetheart, Rudolph Valentino, died at a New York hospital. She was heartbroken. And when this sweet and concerned doctor showed up, she couldn't help but be taken by him. Stephen had introduced himself and offered his services in this dark moment. He installed himself in an extra bedroom in her hotel suite, and there he tended to her. He took her temperature and ordered things from the pharmacy. He kept her fed and rested. On the day of her beloved's funeral, among the throngs of tens of thousands, Stephen escorted Pola to Rudolph's casket. He also found time to set up a first aid station for folks who might be feeling faint of heart. But he was soon recognized. After all these years, the police were finally getting hit to his jive. Though the con was up, Pola refused to press charges. He had never accepted her offer for payment, after all, nor had he improperly conducted himself in her presence. In fact, as she told the American Medical Association multiple times when they tried to go after him, he was the best doctor she had ever had. This was something, of course, that he had always dreamt of being. A doctor. That old dream dashed early in childhood. It seems, through a convoluted route, he had finally made it. Stephen would continue to compulsively imposture for the rest of his life. It's ironic that his end came in a quiet moment of obscurity, in older age, in the nighttime, at a thankless job as an anonymous overnight motel clerk. To say that he never made anything of himself would be misleading. The whole point was to make many things of himself. Stephen once told a reporter that, and I quote, one man's life is a boring thing. I've lived many lives. I'm never bored. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The golden age of the sideshow had something for everyone. And while it was in the habit of promising audiences the world's tallest man or oldest woman, Martin Cooney promised them a different kind of person. Potential future presidents, or the next great industrialists, all packaged up in the bodies of sickly, premature babies. Down on the sandy shores of Coney Island, Martin and his team of nurses were hard at work. Here, right on the boardwalk, Martin had installed a permanent exhibit he called the Infantorium. Barkers would beckon passers-by to stop and take a look inside. Each season, the babies were hawked to visitors in the same way as all of the other spectacles, with a quarter to be paid for the price of admission. There, they'd meet rows of palm-sized newborns, bedecked in pink and blue and encased in glass. And while some found this framing abhorrent, Martin had good reason to draw up such an attractive pitch. He was in the business of saving the tiniest lives. It cost about $15 a day to care for each baby in the facility. He never charged parents for the care of their children, and he paid his staff of nurses well. And still, he had enough money left over to plan his expansion. The whole scene felt both fragile and otherworldly and was a smash hit among the general public for many, many years. Medical professionals often criticized the exhibit, and particularly dangerous imitations, but the truth was that hospitals weren't able to provide the extensive availability of incubators, nor the dogged care that Martin and his team did. They were able to provide round-the-clock support and took in the most desperate cases in the city. If they were lucky, local hospitals might have one incubator, that is, if it was available and wasn't prohibitively expensive to operate. In all, he helped over 6,500 premature babies survive, an 85% success rate that pioneered the study of neonatology in America. He's considered to be the father of the field, a legend in a lab coat. It might be surprising to hear, then, that Martin had no medical license. He's also said to have lied about his birthplace, changed his name a few times, and created himself anew upon his arrival to New York City. It's hard to figure out exactly who he was beyond his own telling, which it seems changed over the years. What is certain among all of that, though, is that he had long been interested in babies. It's been said that he studied under French doctor Pierre-Constant Boudin, who pioneered moving incubators from the chicken coop into the hospital. This new technology was a hit at the 1896 World's Fair, and eventually went on the road with Martin at the helm. He experienced some success on the road and had some misses too. 
It was when he arrived at Coney Island, though, that his potential truly ignited, and the crowds were so happy to be there, to look on with their hot dogs and grilled clams. The Inventorium closed down for good in 1943. It was that year that Cornell Hospital opened up the first neonatal unit in the world, which meant that those babies, and ones who would need care in the future, had a place where they could go after Martin, whoever he really was, was long gone. And wouldn't you believe it, some of these babies, with the truth of Martin's genius, grit, and kindness at the core of their own story, are still alive today. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Robin Miniter, researched by Taylor Hagerdorn, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important. Important information.